Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Now, to tell you something, people, <laughs> Halloween passed, and uh, since me and Joanne moved back to New Jersey, this is the first year we haven't dressed up in the last few years, and it's weird, because in L.A., we had friends, and my friend would always have cool parties at these, these cool, uh, the W or different places, and we would get on the, the metro and take the train into... Hollywood, and she dresses Holly Go Lightly, and I dress as Uncle Fester, which made us look like the weirdest couple you ever seen. And you know, we always had fun. But this year, because all our friends, I mean, I grew up with and she grew up with, most of them have kids and their family, and they're just, they're wonderful, but they're just boring. They don't want to do anything. So, anyway, I hope you guys had a great Halloween. and looking forward to Thanksgiving, and uh, I'm very excited about our show today. My guest, not only a comic, a host, an actor, uh, an amazing amazingly successful entrepreneur and businesswoman, but she just wrote a book, so I don't know if you call her an author or a writer, and the book's called Up All Night, From Hollywood Bombshell to Lingerie Mogul, Life Lessons from an Accidental Feminist. My guest is Rhonda Shear. How are you doing, Rhonda? I am so good. Thank you so much. I'm, I think, I think they say, they call, they're calling me author, so I'm very excited about it. That's awesome. Well, authors, authors, that sounds so good. You know, it's like when you're younger in school, you sit there and you go, author, and you're like, Wow. And it's like, then you sit there and well, also... no. <laughs> no, you're in school and you're like, do I have to finish this term paper? Right. Do I really have to finish this term paper? I just spoke in front of some college students at my alma mater, Loyola, in New Orleans. And I actually told, I asked them, I said, do you guys like term papers? And of course, they're, they're all, you know, everyone said no. And I said, well, learn to love them because your whole life you will have deadlines. You will have to write. You'll have to do things that right now, it's true. You always have deadlines and you always have to research. So uh, I, I tell them to embrace it because it's a lot easier now than later. <laughs> well, you know what's amazing? I think about it, and you know, you brought up colleges. When I was in college, and when you were in college, you know, we just couldn't go to the internet. You know, we had to sit there and go through microfiche, right. microfilm, and and we couldn't sit there and go, "Hey, I have a question. Uh, I can actually <laughs> call one of my friends. I can text, email one of my friends." It's amazing <laughs> now. Like when I sit there. And my, my girlfriend's niece, you know, gets, oh, she gets busy at school. I'm like, oh, my God, you guys could kick out a term paper in, like, two hours. We had to walk to the library. <laughs> we had to do this. We did that. Isn't it amazing, I mean, how much it's changed yeah, for us? Well, I, I, mean, I don't even know about you. If you're on the Internet, I had the Dewey Decibel system. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, there was, you know, it was literally nothing. That was it. So, it, it's, yeah, we've come a long way, baby. So, it, it's, uh, it's, yeah, but you know what? I have to say. That colleges, college teaches you to research, and research is something you end up doing your entire life. So um, I say embrace it. Nothing wrong with it at all. Well, uh, now, I love it. Now, you're from New Orleans originally. Uh, when you were a kid, yeah. what were you like as a kid? I mean, did you think as a, as a little Rhonda, did you think there and say, <laughs> my, you know, my life, I mean, your life has gone in so many different avenues, and, and you've, uh, you've reached success in all no. of them. But what were you like as a kid? No, as, as, a, as a kid, I was very quiet. I played alone. I, I had a, a huge imagination. I, I designed for my Barbie dolls. I loved to play dress up. I was a very feminine kid, but I was very quiet. I had um, my, old, my closest brother to me was seven years uh, older, then 10 years, and then my sister was 16 years older. So that I didn't have like siblings close enough to play with me, so if anything, they teased me. You know, I was just a little sister, and um, so I think I wasn't hurt, because if I would talk, they would like, eh, they would just blow me off and not pay attention. You know, typical siblings, I mean, they're sweet, but, you know, I was just a little kid. So I think that years later, to be heard, that's why I got in the stand-up, it's like, well, these people have to listen to me, they're paying. <laughs> these, these, 
these comedy clubs, you know. So I think I, I used humor a lot in my life, my whole life, to get me out of situations, like even sexual harassment. I used humor to make friends, and um, that's how I fell in love with comedy. But I was actually a very quiet kid, and I'm still very shy one-on-one. Or if I walk into a party, I'm the one who sits down. I'm not the one who, who makes the way around the party. Although I can speak in front of, you know, television crowds, that doesn't bother me. It's just one-on-one, I'm a little bit shy, which is, I think a lot of performers have that. Well, I, you know, I agree with you for the fact that I used to stand up for uh, years back east, you know, and I'm the same way. If I go to a party... I sit there, and I don't want to be the person with the center of attention. And I'll sit there, right. and, I, and I'll wait until I see someone who actually seems pretty cool or laid back, and I get right. a conversation with them. And then I'll make them laugh because I feel comfortable. But I think you're right. I think right. a lot of us are like that way. Yes, I think a lot of us start that way. And, I mean, even I was just interviewed by uh, uh, an anchor woman here, and she's very similar in, in her world. So I think a lot of times people who are in front of the camera are actually shy. We push ourselves at some point to overcome that shyness. And I think with a mic in our hand or with the comfort, you know, in our comfort zone, we're good. But out of that, you know, it's like my husband can walk in a party and talk to everyone. I'm, that's not me. I'm the one who will sit in the corner. But um, as a kid, I wanted to dance. I wanted to be a dancer. I wanted to be a choreographer. That was my background was dance lessons and dancing school. And I became a dance teacher, uh, classical dance. And then, um, and then it just, things just started even happening at a young age where I entered Miss Louisiana, and I and I won, and then pageants led to one thing led to another, and speaking in front of audiences, and so I just I kind of went with my life, I went with the flow as opposed to fighting it, and I think that's why I had so many interesting twists and turns. And I always tell people, you know, don't hate the job that you're working at because you may use that experience down the line at some point. So um, I've always embraced things, even in situations that aren't aren't the most favorable. I've embraced them. Now, now, you, now you said you know you you were you were uh, Miss Louisiana and you had that title. What made you gravitate towards LA? I know I believe you got your your degree in communications. I think did you always yeah. want to leave Louisiana or did you sit there and what made you go to LA? Did you sit there and go I want to be an actress or as you said you roll with it? What was your beck and calling to LA? No, I really didn't. I mean, I I wanted to be in broadcasting, either have my own radio show. There you go, or my or I wanted to be an anchor woman. Uh, initially choreographer, but then that kind of switched pretty quickly in my college years, um, especially when I got into communications. I mean, I loved the medium of television. I never dreamed of leaving my hometown. I was a little girl, really close to my family. And um, no, I, what, what got what the lore of Hollywood, I mean, I loved acting. And if, if acting came up or a part came up and, you know, I always modeled locally or did commercials. If something came up in, in that aspect, I went out for it. But I never dreamed of going to Hollywood. How that happened was, as Miss Louisiana, I was sent to Los Angeles to, um, to actually do some modeling for a jewelry line. As Miss Louisiana, it was, it was a jewelry line that actually was the same line that um, what was one of the sponsors of the Miss USA pageant. So long story short, I went out there to do some modeling. And the, the public relations firm... Uh, the guy who owned the PR firm was the casting director for Happy Days. And, you know, so I went out to, they were just very, being very nice and courting me around L.A. to show me around. And I was just, just a little young girl from, I mean, I was only 18 or 19, 19. So um, his wife, who was a, a, the casting director for Happy Days at the time, said, you know, we have a part in our Christmas show coming up that you might be really good for it. Do you want to read for it? And I, I mean, like, what, you know, I was in communications. I have was taking theater. Like, what kid wouldn't want to read for a happy day? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, of course, of course, I said yes. 
height of happy. I mean, it was like new, but it was at the height of it. And I read with Henry Winkler and Donnie Most and all these people. And I actually read with the stars. Well, that that put that was the book. That was the book when I was eight, nineteen. And they put me up in this great hotel because I was Miss Louisiana. So of course I thought, oh my, God, I didn't get the part ultimately. But they're like, well, we'll definitely use you when you when you when you move here. When you move here, because of course I said I was moving there. We'll use you. So that stayed in the back of my head. But my parents were like, no way, not till you finish school. So I always it was in it was in the back of my head to get back out to Hollywood because it seemed so easy. I walked into Hollywood for like two days, and the next you know I'm reading for Happy Days. Um, so. It was that lore that made me want to get back out there. But I had these other turns along the way of running for public office and posing for Playboy with my clothes on and getting in trouble for posing with my clothes. So all these things kind of led me, uh, you know, once I ran for public office, I decided I wanted to go to law school in New Orleans. I was accepted to law school. And and the, the summer before law school was to begin, I asked my parents if I could go to L.A. just for the summer. And I, I got there, and what do you think? I did a Happy Days episode, I got a Bob Hope special, and bye-bye to my political aspiration at that time and, uh, and New Orleans. So it was just kind of, you know, following my heart, so to speak. And with my parents' uh, good wishes and, and support. I was lucky to have that, of course. Now, what public office were you running for? What was And what were your aspirations? At, were you like, did you someone well, want to be I mean, governor? Or? <laughs> Okay, so that was kind of out of, you know, again, something kind of crazy that happened. I When I was uh, around that same time, I went out to L.A. and ended up, you know, working with, you know, or auditioning for Happy Days. I was queen of a bunch of different things uh, at, at the same time. One of them was called the Floral Trail Society. It wasn't a pageant that you won traditionally. Uh, it was something, it was like a social honor that your parents uh, paid for, and then a committee had to, to sit, select you. So I was queen of the floral trail, which was like, you know, we're talking Louisiana, there's a queen of everything, a tomato <laughs> queen, you know. But a lot of it's tied into society, so it's more for the parents, right? So I was reigning, I was getting ready to reign as queen of the floral trail society in May, and in April, I had posed for Playboy, you know, uh, about six months before, it was totally clothed, and an antebellum gown. Playboy came through town, I wanted to meet them, I told them, I said, I'm probably wasting your time. They go, no, we always put some women in the magazine totally clothed when we do these women of this and that. It was women of the New South. And so I was completely like wearing a Scarlett O'Hara gown. Anyway, long story short, it's still a long story. Um, in April, my picture shows up in Playboy, totally clothed with this beautiful gown on, but in the middle of a page of naked women. And the Floral Trail Society, which was to hold their event that, that next month, dethroned me. And so I decided, how dare they? I mean, they still had my parents' money, and it was a, it was like to me embarrassing socially and everything else because I was a nice girl, and they were making me look bad, and I was just beginning my career. So I filed an injunction to be reinstated as queen, and it went to court. It went to a six-hour court case, and it was just very funny. I ended up not winning. I, I wasn't reinstated as queen, but the judge said you need file for monetary damages but my career was just beginning so there wasn't really any deep monetary damages but if this would have been back if this would have been in this time it would have gone completely viral because I got worldwide press out of it and uh, the fellow that was the president of the Floral Trail Society was running for office and he had this long old school name in Louisiana in New Orleans his, his father had been a mayor it was a big name and I decided to run against him. You know the old saying, hell hath no fury as a woman scorned. So I wanted to run against him just just to irritate him. I mean, that was my initial reason, just to 
well, you, you got me and I couldn't get you back. So I'm going to just throw my name in because I was well known in the city and, 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 and very well liked. And um, so that was my initial reason. But once I got into it, I did my homework. I fell in love with it. I realized it was called the Register of Conveyances. It recorded all the real estate transactions. At that time, it was in the basement of City Hall in New Orleans, which was below sea level. We all know what happened in Katrina. And back then, there was nothing was on internet or, or on my, you know, it wasn't on, you know, computer. It was all on handwritten documents. Uh, of, of every of every real estate transaction going back to the 1700s. So I really got into it and wanted to do upgrade the office, get it out of the basement, and fell in love with them. I fell in love with it. I put my heart into it and fell in love with, I can do this. I mean, this old guy doesn't have to be, do it. I can win. So I lost by 135 votes and uh, forevermore through Gaspar Skiro, who was the uh, guy I was running against. And... Um, he ended up staying in office like 30 years <laughs> or 25 years, something like that. And um, that just sent me on my way. What I learned was that it didn't matter how young you are. People are still going to go after you if they want to go after you. And I learned at a pretty young age that you can do whatever you want. If you want to be a politician or a lawyer or a model or an actress, you just have to go for it. So that's when the course of my personal history changed. And I was, like I said, ready to go to law school because I thought you needed to be an attorney to be a politician, which you don't, obviously, but I didn't know that at the time. And I just wanted to have a legal background and um, ended up in Hollywood. That was my story. (laughs) Well, now i got to ask you, and I saw saw some of your posts on Facebook and um, about, you know, you were talking about sexual harassment. Going to Hollywood at that time, was it, I mean, it's always been prevalent, I'm sure, but was it, were people aware of sexual harassment back then? And, and what, what did you go through in your career? And I know you eventually did comedy, and I read that you did comedy because also, as a comic, you put your own schedule. You're not really dealing with people. You're just dealing with club owners. But there's a lot of sleazy club owners out there. But what, right. was, what, was, it like, right. what was it like at an early age when you were young and you were someone who was a beauty, you know, one misthink, so people think beauty queen, and they don't know how headstrong you are. Did you see it back then? Was there a lot of it prevalent now? And, and, and what do you know about how it's changed? Absolutely. And so here, you go to school and you major in communications and theater and you have all this wonderful background. So you pursue Hollywood completely innocent that this is your career choice and that you're just going to be as good as you are and you will, you will be cast and you will make it on your merit. So that's what you think when you get out there. And then soon you find that sexual harassment, of course, you didn't think of it as those terms then, but, or abuse, you wouldn't have even thought of those terms. But then you realize when you get out there that that is the norm. That is what you put up with. And back then, um, 80s and 90s, there was no one to complain to because it was the era of the Jiggle, Charlie's Angel, um, you know, all, all, you know all, all the film, all shows and television, usually the woman, unless you were a major star, were the victim roles or the softer roles for women. They weren't groundbreaking, groundbreaking roles as they are today. So especially a newcomer and a, and a person who does have a, a sexier look, I was getting all the femme fatale roles or many of them, um, and, they, and, and many of them were completely, I mean, not many, all the ones I got were completely legitimate casting directors going in front of the producers and then waiting to get the role. But the big but is that the larger things that I went out for, like films, many times it was producers that hit on me, it was the actors that hit on me, for me personally, and managers. So that's, I never got, there wasn't a director or any or that, uh, but definitely on a set, I would have actors 
and definitely producers before I got there. So I had, it was horrible. I mean, it was absolutely horrible. It was extremely prevalent. And like I had a manager who was, he handled Linda Evans and all uh, the Michelle Pfeiffer types. That, that was his ilk, those kind of gals. And so he kept saying, I want to handle you, but unless I sleep with you, it's not happening. But he was way more crass than that. He would call my parents and tell them the same thing. So um, then I walked into one inter interview. It was a general meeting back in the day. They would give you generals where you just meet someone, not for a specific role, but, oh, they can meet you for down the line when they're looking for your type. So I had a meeting with uh, Ray Stark, who's no longer with us, but he produced Funny Lady and Funny Girl and major, major films. And uh, he was very complimentary. And then about, you know, 10 minutes into the conversation, he said to me, you have to be willing to wallow in the dirt of Hollywood to get ahead. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you have to be willing to wallow? Um, I mean, I knew what he was saying, but, I, you know, it was just a strange. I mean, I'll never forget that's exactly what he said. And then he said, I would really like you to come spend the weekend with me at my house in Palm Springs. Spend the weekend with me and we can talk more about your career. Well, I kind of giggled it off. Um, it was the first time. That was the very first time anything had happened like that. He didn't get handsy, but he was very blatant about what he wanted. And I, I remember calling my agent, who was just a modeling agency at the time. It wasn't a theatrical agent, so she just handled me for, like, little modeling jobs. And, and I was new to her. And I said, I feel like you may have set me up because you must have known he was like this. And I never heard from her again. So apparently she was getting, I'll say, kickbacks or part of it. Maybe, maybe if she got a girl and he, you know, maybe he paid her off. I don't know. But that was the beginning of realizing that I had to keep my guard up. And I did have times where... I had to run out of an office, and I'm talking about in legitimate places, not hotels, like on the lot of Paramount, on the lot of Universal, in someone's office where they wanted to act out a love scene. And, you know, I'm, I mean, with a, with a producer, you don't, right. <laughs> you might want to act it out, or, or in a, even in a casting session, you really wouldn't get that physical. You might imply things, but you wouldn't act it out in an audition. And um, anyway, I mean, I ran out of offices, and I literally ran from situations, um, bolted, I mean, people do get handsy and fondly, and I fond, fond, tried to fondle, and I would physically, I literally would run. Yeah. I mean, I was offered money for services, like, I went, and this is when you feel dirty, because here I am, this nice girl, college degree, good parents, great upbringing, out there because I feel I'm, I've got some talent, and all of a sudden, you feel gross because someone's offering you money if you spend a night with them, and they can help your career. So, uh, some handy and yes, it's always been prevalent. And my big beef with Hollywood right now is I feel like some of the people, the A-list people that have been involved with, um, like even Harvey Weinstein, I'll just use him because he's the, the one that this is kind of like all breaking around. I feel like some of these women should have spoken out and they didn't. And they could have because we didn't have internet and Twitter and Facebook. So if some of these really big A-listers like, I'll just say like a Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean, I won't say her because I don't know her situation. But, you know, some of the really big names who had Hollywood loyalty behind them would have spoken up. Together, they could have formed this amazing sisterhood and put this guy, I mean, decades, because it's the, it's the young ones like the people like me that go out there that don't have anyone to turn to. And they're the ones who either feel like they're pressured into it or they don't know what to do, or they're so young, they just don't know better. I mean, I had a great, solid background school and family, but what if you didn't have that? So um, I, I feel a little disappointed that some of these big people didn't speak out, and which makes me feel, at the end of the day, it's still the lure of fame and fortune, no matter who you are, that people want. And um, 
I'm glad that this is slowly, um, you know, unpeeling itself, or you know, it's 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 coming more and more. Um, I was talking to someone earlier, another interview, and we did talk about one thing that that it could damage is is that the political correctness of of like being able to flirt. Like I love to flirt. I, I'm a friendly person. I love to compliment people. I mean, if it gets to the point where everybody's even too afraid to say, "Oh, you're attractive," and you know, I mean, that would be sad if it got to that point. Because there is a difference between someone having bad intent and just being friendly or, you know, flirty as well. Right. And you know, I agree with you also with that also because also with the political correctness where you were a comic and I do comic. Um, I was a comic and I still tweet stuff. But sometimes I tweet stuff and I think... I asked my girlfriend, is this okay? And it's not offensive, but you're such in a climate now where if you tweet something right. wrong, that people just attack you. And it's like, God, I'm just trying to be creative. I'm not racist. I'm not this. I'm a good person. And it is. Right. That's the thing. I mean, I was someone, and you know, you did comedy. We observe. I always observe if women got haircuts. And I go, oh, my God, you got a haircut. It looks really good. Well, now, right. if that's considered right. crossing the line, and the funny thing is my girlfriend is a sexual assault victim. She was involved in a very big case of Philadelphia. She's been on a bunch of TV shows. So I know about wow. what goes on. And so me, though, for me to sit there and say, I can't even make a comment, you know, it's just weird. You're right. And as for us as performers, it, it hurts a little bit. Absolutely. Well, I mean, gosh, look at the Don Rickles. Right. <laughs> that man would not have had a career. So, you know, that's when it can go too far. And, you know, comedy will always be, if you can't make fun of yourself, and, 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 and I mean, that is, it's, it's observational. So that's when I feel like there's a major difference. And people, well, what I feel will happen is it will go completely to this political correctness that's absolutely crazy. And then it'll, It'll turn back on itself eventually. Eventually, not not maybe for a while, but I think we'll, they'll go too far one way, and then they'll come back. Um, but they they do have to sort out this mess. And I mean, this is maybe our era where maybe we will see true, true sexual harassment and abuse um, maybe subside at least subside. You know, I, here's the thing: it's always been around in every business. It's in sales. It's in PR. It's in, if you work for a car dealership, if you're a doctor or a nurse, it's in every single business. It's just that the lore of Hollywood is the fame and the fortune and, and the money and everything that goes with it. So that's why, I won't say it's more prevalent, I think it's prevalent in every business. I just think that it's more, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a bigger uh, platform, and that's why we're hearing about it. But it will definitely cut it down in everywhere. I mean, what I'm really hoping and praying for is the whole pedophile thing. I mean, which I, I wouldn't even have thought about that. But on, on the flip side, let me just say this. There's no doubt there are women and men that use that or what their, their gifts to get ahead. So, you know, there's both sides. There's definitely people who say, I'm going to sleep my way to the top, whether it be in a business and or politics. I mean, my gosh, I think we all know, I mean, Washington, D.C. is is a head trip just as much as Hollywood. I mean, it's major power. It's just a different, just a different stage. So, I mean, it's been, you know, I, I think some of those people have, I don't know if because those people are out there that some of these people have misunderstood and just think that everybody wants to sleep with them. I do think like a Harvey Weinstein, I think it was a head trip for him to get the people that didn't want to. I think it was like a conquest. I think if people came onto him, it was like, eh, I can have her. But if someone said no... That was more of a turn on, I mean, which is really sick. You know, it's also. You but know, you know what? 
Yeah. I was going to say, no, you know what's crazy is also you think of someone who actually succeeds becoming a studio head, what the ego they have just to tr- the, ego. Tr- the ego and the megalomaniacal of them just to sit there and say, I'm going to run a studio. I mean, that's a job that's very high attainable. It's like a president, right. you know, presidents all of have course. an ego because you basically like a Harvey Weinstein, you are making people's careers and you have to think You're making so many. Yeah. And like pro There's athletes so do it. So it's just, it's one of those things. It's good to see it's happening. And it's just, as I agree with you, though, I hope it doesn't go too far because then some people are going to get pulled into the vortex, which just they may have said something joking around. That's the one problem. Well, I think you're going to see that. Like, again, I had this conversation earlier about Dustin Hoffman. I know nothing about what happened back in the day, but I can say this. Back in the day, you have to, like, put yourself back in the day 20, 30 years ago. People could joke around. Now, I'm not saying what he said. I don't know if you read that quote, what he said, was right. I'm not, it was great, it was lewd, it was crude. But I'm also a comic. I've been around lewd and crude comments that I know that mean something and that some that don't. I mean, you know, I know you know it, club, you know, sometimes, I mean, it means sometimes it's just joking around. Not everybody can handle that joking around, and I understand that, so it's not appropriate. But you have to put yourself back 20, 30 years ago when things were said differently. And perhaps he, you know, he wasn't a slime ball that was going to push something on someone. And he was probably just a young actor who was like ruffling his, you know, like, like pumping up like a peacock. I mean, my own brothers, my brothers will call me and say the lewdest things, not to someone, but to me about, boy, I wish that girl, you know, that girl's right. hot. I could blah, blah, blah. And I think, and my brothers are like the biggest nerds on the planet. <laughs> like if they got in front of a girl, they would, they would like, you know, their tail would tuck between their legs and they would, they would have nothing to say. So I think it has, sometimes if you just pull a comment out of context, it's going to be completely, that's wrong as well. So, you know, that's 20, 30 years ago when life was different. There's a big difference between someone trying to fondle you, someone saying you have to willow, you know, being well, you have to wallow in the dirt of Hollywood to get ahead, or someone chasing you around their office and wanting to act out a love scene, or, or, or someone who maybe, you know, I, I didn't find it offensive because um, if a casting director or producers wanted to see me in a swimsuit because I was doing a sexy part, I understood that. I didn't think that was too far. And I was, you know, I, I, it, there is, is, there's intent and then there's truly, and that's it. What, what is the intent? You know, if it's really to, to get someone out of her clothes to go further, that's different. Or his clothes too, obviously. Now, now you talked about comedy. What made you want to get into stand-up comedy? And, and, and how was your career path for that? I mean, it was a different time. As I said, there wasn't a lot of female comics back then. You know, in Philadelphia, when I started out in the late 80s, there was maybe like five female comics. Right. What made you want to do comedy, and how did you start well, to plan your career? That's so funny. I started off in 84. I started off in an improv class when I first got to L.A. with Harvey Lembeck, and I loved it. I loved it because it, it, it kind of let me, that the side of me that was really shy, it allowed me to play all these characters and hide behind those characters and be able to just be really free. So that was really beyond cool. Um, and then I started, you know, hanging out with comics through that, and, and I had a comedy act with a fellow, I got, you know, a guy from class, and it was kind of corny, but it, it got me up on stage. And then that went to, um, I started dating a stand-up comic who had done The Tonight Show many times, and I used to hang with him, and write, I ended up writing for him, and, Loving it. And so then the next thing you know, I said, I wanted to be a comic. And he goes, oh, no, I can't go through this again. Meaning like going to the little, you know, going to the little comedy clubs and waiting for your five minutes or audience. And, you know, but I did it and I fell in love with it. And part of it was because I could have more of this confidence level 
to hide behind humor, which I still do. I mean, I use humor. And listen, by the way, nothing turns off a guy faster than when you make cracking jokes and talking too much. That was a a lot of my defense mechanism in in Hollywood was, you know, everybody wants a a girl just to kind of sit there and not say anything, and I'd be wisecracking and being funny. And it it deflected a lot of times past of that thing. So I, I think maybe that's how it started. But I fell in love with it, and I fell in love with it, you know, uh, the laughter from the audience, and maybe when I first started, there was two people and someone sneezed, and I thought it was a laugh. But you know, once you hear that laughter, it's it's addictive, and um, I fell in love with it. And also because everybody, you know, I was I've been kind of you can kind of see the path now that I took. Like I was told I couldn't run for office. I was this or that. I was the first and youngest person to ever run in New Orleans. Well, I was told, well, you're too sexy to be a stand-up, you know, because I was not doing. I mean, the people that I started with were the Paula Poundstones and. You know, Roseanne Barr was a big star, but they were doing more of the housewife thing. And I mean, they were big, but they were doing kind of, I mean, my God, they were hysterical. But I was playing against that type completely saying, I get the guy. And this is what I go through when I have the guy. And um, and, I, and and so I was taking a whole different. So, so agents didn't know what to do with me and managers. And by the way, I did get hit on by comedy club owners, but not, I never, I have to say that with all my years in stand up. And headlining, I never had to run out of a club or run out of, I never had, it was never, I mean, they might make suggestions like, oh, let's go out and let's spend some time, but I never had, I never had it like I did in Hollywood for a part or TV or film. So that's kind of interesting in itself because, yes, comedy clubs are basically bar owners with, with a comedy portion, but it was never that horrible, which is, I, I, maybe I was just lucky, but I fell in love with them. I, I was determined to make it, and I did go all the way up to headlining and opening for people and doing all the TV shows, even though in the beginning they didn't know what to do with me because there was not anyone who kind of looked like me that was doing stand-up. So it kind of opened the doors later, I think, for the Jenny McCarthy's and then, of course, the people. And I brought a, I brought a layout to Playboy called Women of Comedy where I did take my clothes off <laughs> but in 91. And then in 93, I posed for Playboy, um, uh, Rhonda is up all night off of my television show USA up all night. So Playboy was very part, was part of my life and Hefner was a gentleman. So the people that you think would be the ones hitting on you were the, to me, the safest. Like whenever I went to the Playboy mansion, it was like the kind of place where guys really respected women. As a matter of fact, if you disrespected a woman at the mansion at any of those parts, you were thrown out properly and, and instantly. So kind of a dichotomy i believe of what people may have thought the mansion and what playboy and what hefner was it was very helpful in my career now after you posed for playboy the first time you know unclothed did you did your crowd change did people expect i mean it's always different when you talk to certain people who get certain stuck in a certain persona persona did people come because they heard you were funny or did some people come because they said oh we saw her in playboy or was it a mixture of both because i always wonder how that would that, that would be uh, I think it was more, I was on up all night during those years, and I think people came to see me, and, and of course my, my paycheck went up too, because I was a te- on television. I don't think Playboy was the, oh, let me go, I'm not saying that, I mean, listen, I did sign a lot of magazines back in those days for a lot of people who came to see me. I always could pick those guys out in the audience because they were by themselves with a paper bag. <laughs> and the paper bag had the Playboy magazine in it. But, um, but for the most part, it was... Uh, off, I mean, I had I was pretty much even male female audience. I don't think that I was intimidating to women because I I I constantly I mean I made fun of myself and I was self deprecating. So I think it was more the lore that I was on up all night. Now what hurt me I won't say it hurt me because believe me it's given me a lifetime of being able to use the, the name up all night um, and 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 
my gosh, just being on a TV show for eight years is, is amazing, you know, every, every week for that many years. Um, but uh, after Up All Night was over, and I was in, in my early 40s then, so that, that, you know, Hollywood has an age limit anyway, or, you know, a time, <laughs> like, like milk that expires. Um, what happened was, because I used my name, Rhonda, as the character, instead of using, instead of like Elvira, Cassandra Peterson, who used the word name Elvira, if I would have come up with something like Bambi, I wouldn't have been typecast later. People would have realized that Rhonda was not, this, or, you know, Bambi was not the same as Rhonda Shear. But, but because I wanted to get my name out there, I used my name. So it was good and bad. Rhonda Shear was known. Rhonda Shear is still known from Up All Night. And my line is, as an entrepreneur, my, you know, my, uh, my apparel line. But right after Up All Night, it was beyond hard to get out for a television part that wasn't me. I was getting cast as me a lot. I mean, I'd actually do shows where I was playing Rhonda from Up All Night, like Weird Science. A bunch of them came through. But I, it was hard then to be cast, uh, you know, for people to see me beyond that. But still, as a stand-up, even after the show ended, I was getting, you know, just great salary as just a pure stand-up comic. And I was fine with that. I was, I was con I was happy to go on and continue that way until, you know, maybe something, you know, enough years would have gone by that up all night was kind of, you know, after some time, I think people would give you a break, but I was fresh out of that. But then it wasn't so long after that is when I reunited with my high school sweetheart and we started the Rhonda Shear brand. So I left Hollywood, not, you know, only about two years right out, out of, um, you know, uh, or I should say, up all night. <laughs> how did up all night? How, so, did up, how did up all night come about? And did you think when you, because USA wasn't really big then, what did you think when you auditioned for it? And did you ever think that it would, as you said, it's it may put you on the map? As you said, when you got out, it hurt you a little bit. But when you first went for that audition, what were you expecting? Well, it's really funny because it wasn't just an audition. So um, I was with the Dick Clark Management Company. They had a management wing. I don't know if they still do, but they did then. And one of my managers knew that they were going to replace, it was a gal named Caroline Schlitt, who was on for a year and a half before me. And they, 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 I thought she was really good, by the way. She was more today's kind of comic, you know. But I think at that time they were looking for this late night show with a lot of sex appeal and over the top, didn't mind being sexy. And um, they wanted to replace her. She had this sharp kind of zingy wit. I mean, it was very pretty, a brunette gal. But anyway, you know. Who am I to say why the network wanted to change? I mean, it was my good fortune, and, you know, and they, they wanted to change. But anyway, my manager knew about that because he, was, he handled the producer of the show. So he knew it, was, it wasn't an in to get, it, to get me. Well, it was kind of an in to get me in the door, but I still had to go through the, through the audition process. But I knew a little bit more than other people knew. I knew that they were looking for someone with sex appeal. So when the audition came about, Everybody else, when they said hosting this show, I think that the women all showed up wearing, you know, like you would think back then, like a newscaster or a host of a, uh, of a you know, a talk show or something. So I, I don't think anybody really put forth that, um, that zaniness. So I kind of had this inside information that they were looking to replace this gal and they wanted to kind of, you know, really go with some sex appeal. So I went to this audition. I was so tired of hearing that I was too sexy for this. 
I, I, you know, you can't be funny and sexy. But I just said, to heck with this. I'm going all out, and if they don't like me, so what? It's not like it's the first audition. I was a boss. So I went, I went into the room, and I, I, pull, I put the blow dryer in the wall, and I started blow drying my hair, or pretending like I was blow drying it, I don't remember. And I had this low-cut dress on. I mean, it was really low-cut, very form-fitting. And um, and I just went in that, I mean, everybody else was sitting out in the hallway with a suit and dresses on, and I was like, you know, looking, <laughs> you know, much like Elvira, that kind of, you know, very low cut in the front and, and big hair. I just created, I created this character. And um, it was before I came up with the up all night, obviously, but the night was created in my kitchen with, with my uh, producer that lasted, you know, a, a year or so. And I just wanted to come up with a catchphrase because I knew catchphrases were always good. So I just went for it, and I was lucky, and I got it. And, I mean, just because I, I took a chance of doing something different. I mean, I could have, you know, if I wouldn't have gotten it, it just would have been another thing I, I didn't get. But it ended up being lovely, and the why it was lovely is a woman in Kate Koplovitz, she had started USA Network not that many years before from Madison Square Gardens. She was amazing. And she really liked me, and they, and and with early t- cable, um, you could get away with a lot. So we got away with a lot. We we make fun of the network. We, we did a lot of crazy stuff. But it was if you really listened to the shows and got beyond the look of my character, you would see that we were saying and doing some really smart, ahead of its time things. And you look at those shows; they still they still stand up. Many of them stand up to today, and you still laugh at them, which is really cool. But. Um, but I did 450 shows. We taped every week. We never were down. And so the experience I've got of interviewing every human being you could think of, plus plus sketches and, and learning behind the scenes was amazing. And because they didn't pay attention to us, we were like this little cash, cash cow. We were paying for the shows that later came along, like Duckman, Weird Science, and La Femme Nikita. We were making so much money, and it cost nothing to produce this, this late-night show, for them anyway, you know, so... It was a great time to be in basic cable. I mean, you could never get away with what we got away with now, unfortunately. It was just pure, you know, pure TV. How did, how did your life change? Just because then people, everyone started to know you, and the up all night, the, the crowd is a crowd who's up all night. So you have that hip crowd, that party crowd, the people, you know, college kids. Well, did you start getting recognized a lot? And, and, oh, my God. And how do yeah, you handle that? Because you were a comic, and we're used to that. But there's a difference when you're a comic or you're Miss Louisiana to when you're a TV person where you get recognized everywhere. It's like someone who's in a popular commercial. People know them. How did your life change, and how does someone handle that? It was awesome. I mean, first of all, I'm a very humble person, so that never went to my head. Humble, I mean, I guess people, you know, when they win a pageant, they can get snobby or whatever. I was always humbled. I was always appreciative. It was something I was taught, very grounded from my family. And so I loved every second of it. I mean, I had the paparazzi. I, You know, you could get special privileges, like when you call a you know, a restaurant, you'd get right in, or you were recognized back in the day when they used to, you know, do upgrades on, on, on uh, planes. They don't do that as easily, but I'd be recognized at the airport, and they would, you know, they would uh, they would put me on the front of the plane if I wasn't flying first class. It was like, yeah, I'm not going to say, it was very cool. I mean, and that was at a level of a television show, a late-night TV show, so you can only imagine what goes on in Hollywood when you're AAA list, you know, but I mean, being like on, I'll, I'll say the B list or whatever it was, I, it was great. It was fun. It was a great ride. I appreciated every minute of it, knowing that everything has a beginning and an end. 
So, um, and I used it. I utilized it. The only thing I didn't utilize, which is if I would have been with my husband, who was my junior high school sweetheart, I would have utilized the business side. Like, I knew that I wanted to start some kind of company or product because my fan club was going great guns. My sister was helping me run my fan club, and she was doing, you know, I said, please, just handle it. And, and, and if there's any profits you make off of it, you know, please take it because I can't handle the amount of fan mail we were getting. And I wanted to answer everybody and give, you know, sign 8 by 10s and blah, blah, blah. So if I would have been able to utilize the business side, it would have been great. Um, but I, I, I needed the business head, and that came years later with my husband, who, who now, of course, I, I understand that part of the business, too. And sometimes you don't understand. You know, you're just the creative side. That, that's bad, but you need that business side as well. Like, first of all, to save your money. I didn't save any money. I was horrible. I spent it all. But that came about years later and, and taught me lessons and, and what taught us how to grow in the business world as well. But um, I loved it. And being recognized, I did, I did, now my cousin's for the bar, I did utilize it for certain things like, yes, my paycheck went higher when I did stand-up. I also started getting other TV shows and other hosting shows off of Up All Night. So that was great. I mean, I was getting cast a lot, and I, uh, I did everything. I mean, I, I wasn't, so some people would put that down, you did everything. I did, because, you know, I was also, I also realized that Hollywood is fleeting, and, uh, there's only a few names that the Meryl Streep's that can survive for decades. So I wanted to grab at it, and I was already, uh, you know, turning. I mean, my late 30s, turning into 40, and I mean, I, I was very aware of, of, yeah, I might still be able to get these parts, but I, I knew I was playing a sexier role. So I was always aware of who I was. Like I have friends, that, and I'm sure you do too, that are still pounding the pavements, either as an actor or pounding the pavements as stand-ups, and they no work. Once a stand-up, always a stand-up. And believe me, I still delve into it a little bit. But I just couldn't imagine that as my full-time job now. I think I would just flip. I, I, I couldn't just do that club scene. It's just hard. You know, first of all, it's physically hard, um, you know, after you've been doing it for years and years. <laughs> but, um, but I do make speeches, and so I utilize the humor, and I utilize it on television selling on HSN and QVC. And so I'm kind of at the best place right now is to be able to use everything from my past um, and, and embrace the age and where I am in life. It's all now, good. Now, how did the clothing line come up? Because and you have the number one, the ah bra is like the number one selling bra around. It's such a, it's so you know you don't think of comics, and you're right, of comics you don't think of them <laughs> going into business. As you say, we waste our money, we're on the road. Oh, we'll go this, we'll buy this. You know, how did this whole? I, mean, I guess with your junior high school sweetheart, but did you ever think that you know? You had a very successful career in, in comedy and, and, and TV hosting. And did you ever think that you'd become this very inspirational entrepreneur to people? No, not at all. Uh, when Van and I got together, it was purely initially, I mean, we eloped in 15 days. I never I dreamed I would reunite with the first guy I ever kissed. That, that was a complete shock from Louisiana when I'd been dating, you know, really nice guys in comics from L.A., and I never thought I would leave Los Angeles. Um, so that was a surprise. The reason why we started even putting together a company was just we wanted to make up for a lost time of not being together. And so we was compl- I'm not saying people should do this as their business plan, but our business plan was survival. And he owned a company, and he had done very well with it. But through divorce and some other you know facts in his life, that company, he, he gave up that company. I won't go into that long part of it, but we wanted to work together anyway. So he asked me what I wanted to do, and I, I love design. I thought, even though I'd never formally trained in design, I love design. And I, gosh knows, I spent a lot of years in my underwear <laughs> on up all night, realizing that 
um, as cute as those things may have looked and, and enhanced my figure, they were really uncomfortable. So I wanted to do something that was that I wanted to do for myself. I think most inventors, creators, or entrepreneurs that have products do it for themselves, whether it be design or a product that they invent for the kitchen or whatever. And so I did a bra that I wanted that didn't have underwire or hooks and eyes, and it eventually became named the Ah Bra, which I, I literally um, uh, branded that on air one day because I was just like, Ah, it's such a comfortable bra. And then we ended up selling um, to my husband's, you know, he, he kept saying this bra could be marketed universally. And I never saw that. I mean, how do you market a bra? I didn't see like a, a can opener, but how do you market a, a bra? And we ended up doing an infomercial selling 35 million worldwide in 34 countries and then winning like every award you could think of, in, you know, as an entrepreneur. So that was a shock. Um, but my, my husband had the business sense that I didn't understand, like, you know, to keep reinvesting. We couldn't get a loan from a bank because neither one of us had been in the fashion industry or the manufacturing um, industry. So that was all new to us. Um, but we just persevered, believed in ourselves, wanted to spend time together, wanted to work together. He used his business knowledge because he had been, he had only worked for himself and he had many companies. And so he used what he knew, and then I used my marketing, and because you sell yourself, as you know, as a comic, so I kept using all of that, and um, lo and behold, you know, now it's almost, I think it's 16 years we've been at this, and it's been an amazing ride, never thinking, knock on wood, that we would achieve the success that we did, and um, and we have, and, and what's really great is that we're in a really great place right now, because with the changing world of retail, and shop more shoppers and consumers going online, it's like, great, because, you know, I want it to be initially like at Bloomingdale's or, or Macy's, and my husband kept saying, but it's really a clean business when you sell right directly to the consumer. But I wanted, the, it was kind of like going back and wanting the fame of Hollywood. I wanted the fame of seeing my name, you know, the Ronda Shear brand in, you know, the stores I shopped. Uh, now, you know, we're many boutiques, but we're mainly online, many, many companies online, on HSN and QVC, and then our own .com. But no doubt, it's a great business because this is where retail, and I don't know about you, I do most of my shopping online. So um, especially with bras and panties and uh, intimate apparel, women would rather shop online than, than have to go into a store and try on, you know, uncomfortable, in, in an uncomfortable, unflattering lights, bras and panties. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, our line has branched out to apparel and loungewear, and we've actually done lines for even people like uh, Kato Kalin, Crystal Hefner, um, Anthony Sullivan, who's the OxyClean guy. So we've done lines for other people, too, but we're really focusing right now just on my brand because it's, it's a handful. <laughs> it's, a, it's a handful. You know, it's my husband still, he's a, he's the CEO of the company. I'm the president, and my five dogs are, are also have, have, uh, have titles. It's funny you mentioned. It's funny you mentioned Cato because I think you met with him in Burbank a few years back, and I know Cato, and I ran into him. I was at a bar across the street, and he told me about the whole couch potato thing, and that's just funny that yeah. he, he said it. And that was a few, that was a few years back because I saw him, and he's like, "Coop, what's up?" And I said, "Oh," and it's just funny. So now, what was it like? How did it change once you got on QVC? Like I've heard that just blows your product up. Well, interesting. I'm on HSN, but what's interesting is that QVC is now and HSN are one and the same because uh, Liberty Media, which owns QVC, just bought HSN. So I'm really excited because that just makes, it makes, I think um, Amazon's the number one retailer in the world, Walmart, then QVC, HSN. So that puts us in a really great place. 
Um, yes, your, your line, your product can blow up if you're on one of those shopping networks, but the network expects you to sell so many dollars per minute. And it's a real, I mean, for them, not for you, but like, you know, like $5,000 a minute. So if you think about that, I mean, it's like, I don't know if you could put it into last as a stand-up, but in real time, you see your sales. You see, you can literally look at a screen and see how many people are buying online, on phone, on, you know, on the computer, everything. So if you don't continue to make this a certain amount, dollars per minute, then basically, you know, if you're not making money for them, then you're not going to last. So we've been, knock on wood, very lucky to have, you know, exceeded our sales plan and to at least always, you know, do the sales that they've wanted us to do. And that's by staying fresh and, and, and uh, keeping up with what's going on. And not, I don't follow, I don't follow other brands. I just do my own thing, uh, as I did with the bride. It's something I needed for myself, so I keep manufacturing the products that, I want in my life for this time in my life, and it seems to really work out well with my customers. So, um, knock on wood, I hope we just keep going in this direction until my husband says, no, I just want to play golf, and I never want to <laughs> ever walk into the office again. Now, you know, you've, you've had this very fascinating life. Is Why did you decide to write a book now? I'm sure a lot of this is in your book, but what, when, what made you decide to write a book? Because you were very well, inspirational? Is that what happened? Or what was, why was the well, time I think now? it, it all the above. First of all, I wanted to write a book because I think everybody who's lived all this craziness wants to, it, they just want to put it down. It's like a big diary, you know. I think you just want to have it. And it's something I've wanted to do and people through the years would say, you should write a book. But then it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have that much of an ego that I think everybody knows me from Up All Night or my television appearances or even, you know, HSN. So I, I had to make it an inspirational book, but that was obviously the, the fun part of it was I did all these crazy things through my life and and some really amazing things but why did i do them one and two what did i learn from each episode what did i learn from running for public office what did i learn as a beauty queen what did i learn you know um getting together with my junior high school sweetheart and marrying at 45 you know that you can find love for the first time at a, at a you know and not be 22. so every chapter has lessons that i that you can take away whether you're male or female and then there's the entrepreneurial section and charity, because I do a lot of charity work. So every chapter has something to take away. And then there's also, uh, like, the fourth wall break, where it's kind of like the bubble over my head, like what I was thinking when I was posing you. Like, you know, everybody wants to know, what is you, what, what you're like in the situation where photographers are shooting your picture. What is that bubble over your head, what you're thinking? And I think that's, that adds the levity to the book. I mean, there's a lot of funny moments along with some serious moments. So, yes, it, it has autobiographical, obviously, elements, but it also has lessons And um, for an entrepreneur or anyone, you know, just wanting to get, I, I mean, I, I think students would love this book because, you know, just never, not just never giving up, but, but the things you go through that put you back several paces and then you have to deal with that and go forward. Or my husband and I, like, I mean, basically, when we started financially, we had nothing and, and banks wouldn't loan us anything. So people said, well, how do you start? Well... It's all in the book, you know. Anybody can, if we can do it, anybody can do it and start from ground. I just, you know, just can't be lazy and you have to believe in yourself and not give up. That is the great thing about living in this country is the American dream still can exist. We're living proof of it. Now, now how's, how's the reaction when you go to the book signings? Are people digging it? I mean, because you have a great fan base and, and it's always good when someone writes a book because you get to relate to them. You know, there's, I read a lot of books from autobiographies, and and I read up with past guests, and I have a lot of guests who've written books. 
how are the pa- the fans coming up to you? Because it gives you a, a side that they don't really know, and I think it's very it's very helpful to someone who's a fan of your work. I think it gets them to know you better. I think well, I think a lot of people think it's surprising because they may have even known me from either Up All Night or just HSN or or whatever. They've known me or they don't know me at all, and they just like the the book has a pretty cover and some good pictures <laughs> in it. So I, I I think that it's 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 People are seeing a side of me, like even even really good friends, like a, a really good male friend read the book, who is a, a major success story out of Canada, major, major, and made it from ground up, and he read it, and he gave me the most beautiful compliments on the book, and how he couldn't put it down, he had to finish it, and how he, he I mean, as much as he knew me, and we've traveled with this couple, even traveling with them, that there were certain things he didn't know. So that, of course, made me feel amazing. That it, it was this because I'm I'm very open about myself on air and who I am. Maybe that's the stand-up comedy background that you have to just be very raw out and show your soul. Um, so that that part's really neat. And then just the, the, like you said, the, going to the book signings. This is all new for me. So you know all these things. It's, it's a new experience. I mean, I've signed a lot of autographs through my years, but this is fun. And somebody reading your book, it's it's completely complimentary to think that someone would take the time to read your story. And, and hopefully be motivated by it. So um, I'm loving it. I mean, I've only done two cities, but it's so far really, really great. And I went back to my hometown, and it was of New Orleans, and it was amazing. The press was amazing. The response was amazing. Being asked to speak at my alma mater was amazing. Just everything about it was full circle for me, which was really cool. Were you very happy with the end product of your book? Because you're sharing yourself, so I, and, and as you know, you're a comic. We worry about jokes and laughs. We worry about everything. Yeah, yeah. We laugh everything. We worry about. But when you share yourself, when you finally read the final copy, were you like, "This is awesome"? <laughs> yes, yes, and it's really funny that you say that because, like, early on when I used to watch myself, you know, on TV, and then you know, and then you criticize it, or I would go to an audition and, and walk out and for like days say, "I should have done it this way. I should have done it this way." You, I'm sure you understand that. Or I should have done this line, you know, or you messed up a joke one night and you beat yourself up. So, yes, um, I, I was critical, but with the book, I have to say, I, I did it twice. I wrote it completely autobiographical, and then I rewrote it with the life lessons and, and shortened it. So I had to take out a lot of stories. It was kind of painful to take out a lot of the stories, but once I did it, I just put it down and didn't look back. <laughs> I just put it down. And the same way with the book, when it was completely finished and edited by a professional editor, I read it one time, and then I had to put it down. I just couldn't look at it. I didn't want to look at it again, because I know I would have gone back and said, wow, this should be in, or this maybe." be But I'm, at the end of the day, I am 98% um, be, beyond excited about it. it maybe there's two percent of things i'd still want to you know you know you just want to fix it up <laughs> but or add like a word or, or a story but uh, um, i'm very very proud of it uh is the, is the ultimate yeah the answer i'm very proud i know that it's in terms of being insightful to other people it is um motivating and inspirational i think that it it, it does all of that and as i think we're always you know our critics and always want to add or take away something um, I already want to write another book on women's body image and, and what, how we beat ourselves up and what we think about ourselves and how we do too much of that since I'm in the business of working with women and their bodies all the time. That's what I do. But this one's the first one. This is the goal. Sell this one. 
continuing to get some really good, I'm getting great reviews on it and some press people too. So that's exciting. Well, that's awesome. So um, I think I think I've learned. If anything, I've learned through the years of my years in Hollywood is not to beat myself up too much and not to look back on every single line or word or performance. And you can put it down at some point and be happy with it. So yes, I'm happy with it. <laughs> that's awesome. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. People, go check out the book. It's on Amazon.com. It's up all night. From Hollywood bombshell to lingerie mogul, life lessons from an accidental feminist. Go to Rhonda's website, rondashear.com. On um, your Twitter, is your Twitter at Rondashear? Yes, it is. Okay, and, yes, and so, it is. Very easy. And thank you. My Instagram, Rondashear, uh, Facebook, Rondashear fan page. So um, please join me. And I have a YouTube. I actually have Rondashear TV where I'm putting more and more of these things up, even my some of my speeches that I've been doing. So uh, it's a fun channel. A lot of up all night clips there, too. That's awesome. Well, people, so go check her out. Also, people, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Instagram, at Cooper Talk 1. My website is coopertalk.net. I have, I don't know, 650-something episodes up there. You can email me, cooper, wow. coopertalk.net. Also, don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. When I had my health problem a few years ago, I wrote a low-sodium cookbook. It's 120 recipes. They're for one. There's no pictures. So, guys, don't get intimidated. There's no pictures to freak <laughs> you out. The ingredients are basic. Like me now, I cook with cumin, but there's no cumin in there. So you can buy it at Amazon. You, you know what you can do? You can go to, to, go to Amazon.com. You buy Rhonda's book, and then you buy my <laughs> book. But buy her book because her book's much more interesting than mine. But you can buy mine at Amazon.com, or you can buy it at StopTheSalt.com. And that way, I make more money, and I'll sign it for you. So people, check out Rhonda. Follow her on social media. Buy her book. Buy, buy some of her clothes for your girlfriend for Christmas. And I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you all next week.